Hey everybody and welcome to the Compact Nation podcast. The original trio is together again. This is Emily Shields with Iowa Campus Compact. And I'm J.R. Jamison with Indiana Campus Compact. And I'm Andrew Sellingson, president of Campus Compact. So we're reunited and it feels so good. Um, No, I would say I miss you guys, but you know, Leslie was pretty awesome. So I don't know if I did. Oh, that's not fair. <laughs> no, I have to say, Leslie is really awesome, as was Sid does. So it's great to have those guest hosts on. Yeah, and I like uh, not to feel that I'm missed, because then I don't have to feel guilty. Oh, okay, that's good. That's a different way of thinking about it. Um, but it is good to reconnect. So if you didn't listen to our last episode, we talked about culture change largely on campus with Stephen Black and uh, Leslie Garvin from North Carolina Campus Compact. So you should go back and and listen to that. And this time we're taking a little bit of a a different take and a different perspective on culture change. But first, just uh, need to check in, check in how how everybody's doing um, this mid-October fall day. Where's Andrew? Are you in Boston? I am in Boston. I um, have been some very interesting places recently. Last week, I started the week in Denver, and I was there for the uh, conference of the Coalition of Urban and Metropolitan Universities and uh, spoke as part of the opening plenary on the relationship between the anchor institution mission of higher education institutions and the civic education of students. And basically argued that there's just no no daylight between those two things. You kind of have to do them in tandem or you're not really doing either one properly. So that was uh, that was a fun talk to give a lot of interesting conversation uh, with people that, you know, afterward about that. Uh, and while I was there, I also got to do a little drop in on a Campus Compact of the Mountain West event on Engaged Scholarship. Just got to say hello to people. So that was fun, even though I couldn't stick around because I was off to the Kumu conference. And then I headed further west out to Davis, California for the conference of Imagining America, Artists and Scholars in Public Life. They have just moved their headquarters to UC Davis. And this was their kind of uh, kickoff conference in the new locale. And it was a really good meeting. Um, For those who don't know that organization there, along with Kumu, great partners and allies of ours and uh, you know, focused on the arts and humanities. So their conference is a lot of fun because there's a lot of performance going on. There's a lot of music. There's all kinds of things that just make it really, uh, really, yeah, fun to be around in addition to like learning a lot from some great people. I got to make a visit to the student farm at UC Davis and hear about how the student farm is a site for social justice work, which was really interesting. So that was a really fun visit to UC Davis. Well, that sounds exciting. Yes, I love Imagining America's work. Uh, you know, t- of course, Timothy even was our first podcast guest. True, and he's no longer um, the faculty yeah. director because they rotate that. So he and Scott Peters have finished their term, and now uh, Erica Cole Arenas is new director and a faculty member at UC Davis, um, and they are off to the races. Yeah, exciting. Well, I've been traipsing around the Midwest myself a little bit, uh, including a a meeting up in the Twin Cities last Friday with our Minnesota and um, Wisconsin colleagues doing some community of practice work across our three states. That was pretty exciting. And then Monday, I was up in beautiful Decorah, Iowa at Luther College at the Iowa Student Personnel Association Conference, and um, George Koo was the keynote speaker. Nice. Right yeah, here in was, Indiana. Yeah, Indiana guy, um, National Institute for Learning Outcomes Assessment. Uh, basically, a lot of support for service learning and other high impact practices. So it really fit with the presentation I was there to give. Well, I wish I could say I've been traipsing around, but I took my first vacation in two years, which is why I was not on the last episode. So I did go to Jamaica with my family, which was a nice getaway because after two years of partnering with other compacts and partnering with our campuses here in the state and doing speaking engagements and working on curriculum and such, 
I was really ready, quite honestly, for for a week away from from everything. So I'm back and I'm feeling recharged. Well, I think that counts as a, a traipse. That's true, yeah. I traipsed across the Caribbean. <laughs> <laughs> pretty, pretty jealous of that one. Um, great. Well, JR, do you want to go ahead and introduce our very, very exciting guest for this episode? Yes, I was overwhelmed with excitement when I reached out to Vule and asked if he would be a guest on the Compact Nation podcast. Vule is the executive director of the Rainier Valley Corps in Seattle, but he's most known as the founder and blogger of what used to be Nonprofit with Falls, which is now called Nonprofit AF. Many of you may receive his emails on Mondays talking about the nonprofit world and community engagement and really focusing on tough conversations we need to have in the field, but he does so with humor, and he says it's a way to make Monday suck a little less. So Vu and I sat down to talk about cultural competency in nonprofits, how the field can better support college students preparing for careers in the nonprofit world. We also talked about funding, but we also got a little off course and talked about the Golden Girls and Game of Thrones, and you may be asking yourself how all of that connects together. Well, let's go to that interview now. Vule, welcome to the Compact Nation podcast. Hey, JR. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. We're really excited to have you on this episode today. Most of our listeners likely know you from your blog, Nonprofit Always Fresh, or I like to say Nonprofit Absolutely Fabulous, but it was formerly <laughs> known as Nonprofit with Balls and uh, your Monday messages essentially that make Monday suck a little less. But you also are the executive director of the Rainier Valley Corps. Do you want to tell our listeners a little more about what that is and what you do? I would love to. I, I think a lot of people don't realize that I run a nonprofit full time. <laughs> and they think it's like, oh, here's maybe this random guy who's just writing about nonprofit work. But no, I'm, I'm a full time executive director of Rainier Valley Corps, which is a, an organization in Seattle. And our mission is to try to bring more leaders of color into the nonprofit sector and also to build the capacity of organizations led by communities of color so that they can uh, work together more effectively uh, to change systems and policies and uh, our flagship program is kind of like a like a Peace Corps type program where we find cohorts of talented leaders of color we give them a job a full-time job for two years and we send them to organizations led by communities of color we train them and then they implement fundraising programmatic uh, strategies and everything at these organizations to help them build their capacity while the leaders also develop uh, skills to remain in the nonprofit sector Wow, that's excellent. How long have you been doing this, or how long has the organization existed? We've been around for about three years now. That's great. So much of your work, um, I'm assuming with the Rainier Valley Corps, but also through your other work that you do, focuses on cultural competency and challenging nonprofit leaders to be better. Can you tell our listeners a little more about how you define that term? There's actually kind of starting to be a backlash against cultural competency. And I think a lot of leaders of color have been saying that in some ways, cultural competency has been used as a shield to really not talk about systemic injustice, systemic racism and things. So I think a lot of people think of the micro level when they talk about cultural competency, which is, you know, how do I interact with people of different cultures and be respectful? which I think is great. And so you learn things like when to shake hands and when to not make eye contact and things like that. But I think we have to have, we have to elevate this conversation to higher levels in talking about the sort of like uh, systemic injustice that, that's out there or implicit biases and just systems of racism and oppression that we, we have to address. And you do this through your writing, which is what I find really unique and, and inspirational. Can you tell us a little bit about the inspiration behind why you started the Nonprofit with Balls blog, which is now Nonprofit Always Fresh? Well, it's actually Nonprofit AF, JR. Yes. <laughs> it's, we try, it was originally Nonprofit with Balls, and now it's Nonprofit AF to be less provocative. Yes. Uh, it was started about five, maybe six years ago. 
when a funder actually asked me to write from a grantee's perspective, this uh, social venture partner in Seattle, and since they're a funder, you can't really say no to them, right? Mm-hmm. So they're like, okay, oh, you write us a blog. I'm like, oh, okay, you give it. <laughs> I'll do it. <laughs> Um, but no, SVP was really great. They were very supportive of my organization at the time, which was the, the Vietnamese Friendship Association. And uh, so I was glad to write uh, this this blog. And I, I realized that people don't really talk about this sector in, in a way that is not academic. You know, mm-hmm. it, it tends to be very wonky academic, which I think is also good. We, we need those articles and white papers and things. At the same time, there's so much humor and joy, and a lot of the work that we do is very serious, but we don't need to take ourselves so seriously. So I really wanted to add this uh, this humorous bent and, and tone to this uh, to, to the blog post I was writing. And what I discovered was that people really wanted that. They, they haven't seen people talk about this sort of work with a lot of joy and humor. And so yeah, I think originally there was only eight people who read the blog, four of whom were my staff, my mandated. I'm like, this is, <laughs> you're reading my blog. Uh, but after a while, people started to, uh, it started to catch on. And uh, so it's, it's been really great and, and really rewarding to, to write. And it's all over the place now. I mean, I can't tell you the number of times that I log on to Facebook or Twitter and I see a colleague or a colleague retweeting another colleague of theirs, uh, one of your posts from Monday, and you do bring the humor really well. And I think that's what is pulling so many people in because we need that less academic-y speak and just getting down and getting real in the conversations about What's holding us back from actually doing this work well? What are things that we need to be thinking about? I know recently you started to write about how you were starting to get more angry and you felt like maybe you were pulling away from some of the the humor. So you did a few more posts recently focused on humor. Do you struggle sometimes sitting down to find humor or the inspiration to write some of these posts? Oh yeah, all the time. I I think being a writer, that that just comes with the territory it writing is a joyful torturous process <laughs> that's that, that's what it is and i i have to force myself to sit down and write and it, it is it's always a laborious process every single time at the end i'm really happy with it and i you know i, I really appreciate having spent this time and this creativity doing something i really love but I don't know. It's it can be very very challenging, and I procrastinate all the time. I, I have seven hundred topics on my running list of things to write about, uh, but at the end of the the week is when I, I write, and the blog posts are published every Monday, and I write them at on Sunday at like nine p.m. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> so from nine p.m. you know, I'm done watching Game of Thrones or The Walking Dead or whatever. And I'm like, ah, oh, crap, now I have to write my blog. <laughs> yeah, so yeah. from 9 p.m. until 2 or 3 a.m. is when all my creativity is, you know, is, is, is activated. Um, yeah, so it can, it can be challenging, but I also recommend that everyone try it. And I, I think we need to have more voices out there writing about things and analyzing and reflecting on, because this work is hard. Not mm. the work is incredibly difficult and complex. So can you talk a little bit about why you chose humor when we're looking at the growing divisiveness in our world and increased threats to social justice that are popping up daily? Um, what, what turned you toward humor as the aha of this is the approach to take? Yeah, I find that we have, you know, there's the contents and the message that we want to get out. But then there's the way to deliver these things and the way that you deliver something can be can really greatly affect how people perceive it and and absorb it and if you know so I think it's not just that you have amazing content or whatever but the way that you do it is just as important and I think it can be really exhausting to to try to you know um, to to deliver this message in such a way that people can actually hear instead of just saying you know I'm I'm really fed up and this is terrible and this is horrible and why can't you people do like this and this and this 
humor is a tool that can be tricky because it can be really risky and dangerous. If you do it wrong, you will have a lot of people not very happy with you. And we've seen this in celebrities and others who just use humor wrong and it, it just it does not turn out well. But I think when it does turn out well, people can be very receptive to the message that, that are out there. And it also makes people more relatable. It, it makes you seem like a, another human being, you know. It makes it seem like you're just talking to a friend at a bar or something versus an academic who's trying to lecture you or a politician who is, you know, on a soapbox again. So I, I find it to be a very important tool to use. Mm-hmm. And when I read your posts, it's it's conversational, and and there are so many ahas that I take away from that. Just like you said, I do feel like sometimes I'm sitting in a bar chatting with a friend about the realness of this work. So I I do want to keep on the topic of humor for a moment, uh, but maybe shift gears away from nonprofit, but maybe not uh, because I want to talk about the Golden Girls, and there's much to unpack there that could relate to the nonprofit world and how maybe we interact with colleagues and the different personalities that intersect within our, our worlds. Um, but, you know, I'm really curious. I, I'm a huge Golden Girls fan myself. I'd, I'd love to know, who's your Golden Girl persona? <laughs> I think I am... Uh, I, I think I'm, I'm Rose, actually. Rose is always the one who is trying to get everyone, you know, to, to get along, and she's really sweet, and and very thoughtful and she can be a little wishy-washy and <laughs> scatterbrained <laughs> and I think I kind of embody that um, yeah <laughs> that's so I've actually taken the BuzzFeed quiz not that it's scientific by any <laughs> means but apparently I'm Blanche I, I don't know why but apparently I'm Blanche but I like to think I'm more like Dorothy I, I like to think I bring some oh. wit and sarcasm so maybe a nice Mix of the two, uh, but well, tell Blanche me. is is really great, and every team needs a Blanche. Blanche <laughs> is like a visionary. She brings the fun and the energy. Yeah, I actually did a training on this. I facilitated a training where we talked about the different leadership styles, mm-hmm. and we joke about the BuzzFeed survey and, and things. But actually, the Golden Girls map out to these four archety- archetypical uh, styles pretty well. You know, whenever we do the Myers-Briggs or whatever, or, or, or the color things or whatever, mm-hmm. they always kind of divide into four main leadership styles. And they map out pretty well to the Golden Girls. Well, maybe I am Blanche because I'm an orange on the, on the color scale, which uh, is maybe a little out there and, and the one who likes to, to bring fun. But, but it really does make sense as you're discussing this. So uh, all the different personality types and the old saying of looking at you need all different types of people on the bus, right, to make the organization work. So there is much to take from the Golden Girls on nonprofit culture, right, or just organizational culture. Absolutely. Yeah. I think there's a lot we can learn from the Golden Girls. <laughs> yeah. I mean, they were tackling some progressive issues way before the time. You know, they were talking about LGBTQ issues 20 or 30 years ago. That is really progressive. Yeah. My, my, uh, my wife, she's a huge fan of the Golden Girls, and that's why like, I started watching it. I'm like, I love these characters. They're, <laughs> they're amazing. Uh, well, I was actually introduced to the Golden Girls by my babysitter uh, when I was a kid, when it was on in real time. Um, and I don't want to say a kid, I would say I was like preteen. And uh, I immediately fell in love with the, the Golden Girls. And I agree with you, they were tackling issues that were taboo in, in many ways. I mean, even divorce, right? I mean, divorce was a thing that in, in the 80s was starting to become more of a norm and, and a little more acceptable. But, you know, you had all these women living together, um, some of them divorced, some widows, and uh, from all walks of life and their personalities coming together. And, uh, yeah, I just, I sorry, I, we kind of got off yeah, course, maybe, but maybe really not. Great. Yeah, it's a great show. I actually remember one episode where I think Sophia was visiting a, a nursing home or something. And, you know, I think one of her friends was just having a really terrible time. And Sophia says, there's always tomorrow. And her friend was, she turned to Sophia and said, well, it's already tomorrow. 
And I'm yeah. like, oh my god. Yeah. Like, existentially, it was incredible. I'm like, no, no, you're completely right. We think that there's always a tomorrow, but for many people, tomorrow is already here. They're, they don't have more tomorrows. You know, it, dealing with aging mm-hmm. and death. I mean, it's, it's an incredible show. Well, especially thinking about nonprofit world and, and in our world and in higher education, working with nonprofits around community engagement work. I mean, many of the folks we work with in our communities, they don't know what tomorrow may look like. And so that's so relative, I think, um, in that way. So shifting, shifting back somewhat to that and, and talking about um, your community centric model when it comes to donors and this idea of like truly understanding community needs and, and, and getting your hands dirty in some ways, you encourage nonprofits to move away from a donor centric model. Um, you would even in your writing, you talked about fundraising and nonprofits a lot like the Hunger Games. And you also used another yeah. analogy about like pulling donors to a lake to say, look at these ducks that you helped save um, without showing them that they too are actually ducks. And I just really loved the way that you wrote that. And then you really challenged nonprofits, and I would argue too, folks in higher education, um, to move away from that to more of a community-centric model. Can you talk more about about that? And, and if, there, if anyone's doing that well, what does that look like? Yeah, I think that we there's some there's a lot of great things about the donor centric model. So I don't I don't want to feel like I'm dismissing the donor centric model. I feel like many nonprofits do need to do a better job ensuring that their donors feel appreciated and a, and a part of the work, and that they are transparent with their donors and, and everything. But I do feel like many people have been misinterpreting donor centrism. And it's understandable because donor centrism literally means donor at the center. Mm-hmm. And many people have taken it way too far, where it is all about appeasing to donor and using whatever works so we can get as much money for our own organization as possible. I don't think that is the way that we should be doing this because you know our, the survival of our, of our own organization cannot be the most important thing to the work. And so, because it's been perpetuating this Hunger Games when all of our work is interrelated. And, but yet we are in these, I guess, silos, just trying to ensure that our own organization is, is on top. And I don't think that will be effective. So what does donor centrism look like? It, it looks like all of us being in agreement that the community is the most important thing, the most important element, everything is around community. And our donors are important, but they are just one part of the community along with everyone else. And we all have our roles to play to ensure that this is the community that we want to live in. And, and what does that look like for a nonprofit? It might mean that some of us need to not apply for some grants or we might lose a donor. You know, we have to talk to our donors about heavy, uncomfortable things like racism or wealth disparity or paying taxes. We can, yeah, we can. It's easier for us to just write a handwritten thank you note and thank a donor and call them up and be very appreciative about uh, a gift that they made versus getting everyone to think about, hey, maybe we should all be thinking about uh, progressive tax policies. You know, in Washington Mm. State, we don't have an income tax. So then we're thanking donors for providing funding to education when really everyone should just be paying taxes so we can have strong schools. Mm So these are the things that we have to think about. And we also need to get away from this, this idea that only the, the beneficiaries of our work benefit from the donors' donations. I think we have to get donors to believe that they are also benefiting because they live in this community too. Mm-hmm. And their kids are going to grow up and they're going to marry other people's kids. So they have to invest in all the other kids that are out there. Um, yeah, so I think that's, that's in a nutshell, is what donor centrism is. is I mean, uh, community-centric model as well. Yeah, I, I mean, I love the analogy so much when you say that we have to show them that they too are ducks. I, I just, I really love the way that you I- express that. Have you seen a nonprofit, and, and perhaps your nonprofit is doing this, I, I'm not sure, but have you seen a nonprofit attempt this approach and what what does that look like? Is it is it working? Are donors receptive to 
this approach or is it really in many ways like a retraining re-education of the way that we do this work i think it's both a retraining and, and re-education and but i i have also seen some organizations starting to to do this uh, or they have done it all along and they didn't realize you know that there was a terminology uh, for it but uh, talking to a few of them you know the ones who are saying things like well we don't accept donations from everyone and it doesn't matter if it's a 10,000 donation if this donor does not understand social justice or this donor says well we're go- I'm gonna give you um, $10,000 but you know I-, I want you to minimize your work around LGBTQ issues or whatever and then the, the organization says no that's against our values uh, this is our community and we're not going to take your money because, because of that you know mm-hmm. because what we've been seeing is fundraisers saying well this donor is a little bit racist or homophobic but they give a lot of money and so maybe we should just like give them a pass because it's really not our job to educate our donors about these issues I do think that it is everyone's job to do this, and I, I know that more organizations are having more more of these conversations with with donors, mm-hmm. and I do think that many donors are very receptive to this. I think that in some ways we have been shortchanging our donors because we assume that here are the things that they are going to like and appreciate, and let's remove all the other things that we don't think that they would be open to. You know, let's let's not talk to them about race and class and social justice because that will make them uncomfortable. But I think what I've been seeing, at least in my own interactions with many of the donors, that there is a hunger there to talk about these issues. They don't, as as much as we say that we don't want to treat our donors as ATMs, that's kind of what we do. Mm-hmm. We treat our donors as ATMs because. If we don't treat our donors as ATMs and we want to treat them as actual partners, then we would have arguments with them. We would have like intense conversations that may be uncomfortable on occasion, right? And right. we don't do that. And, and so they, yeah, we. So I think we're like missing the the wholeness of the donor, you know. And some of them, I would say that if we give them the opportunity to be engaged deeply with the work, the uncomfortable, complex work that many of us are doing that many of our donors would be very receptive to it. Yeah, and if we're really cultivating relationships with them in that way, then much like any other relationship, um, you know, I'm just not going to walk away from a friend or someone else in my life and say, well, you're completely cut out and you can no longer have this from me, right? Um, And so, I mean, it makes so much sense if we approach it in, in that way. And I think too, perhaps, some organizations may not think about the repercussions of, well, this donor is slightly racist, but they give a lot of money, but then something may backfire around that where the racism truly comes out and is exposed, and then your organization's connected to that, and that's problematic as well. Yeah, and we've all been so trained uh, around many of these principles. I remember giving a keynote speech around this issue a while ago uh, and this was right after Charlottesville and someone stood up and says how do we talk to our donors around Charlottesville and around race and inequity without you know losing them mm. and I think the agreement in the room was well if your donors are uncomfortable you know if, they, if they're not if they're going to stop giving because you are fighting against racism and white supremacy then is this the kind of donor that you really want to have at your organization, you know? And hopefully the answer is no, right? <laughs> we don't, <laughs> if they focus yeah. more on a community-centric model. Uh, yeah, hopefully the answer to that would be no, but I agree with you. We're so trained and it's so ingrained in us. And even, you know, in, in higher education, community engagement in higher education, we're so trained on um, support for our work that... Uh, yeah, I mean, I think there there's a ton to learn and a, co- a deeper conversation that needs to happen to really overhaul the culture around this. And I appreciate you approaching it with so much honesty and doing it in a fearless and humoristic way. Thank you, JR. Yeah. So thinking about colleges and universities and students who want to be future nonprofit professionals, 
what do you think we could be doing in higher education to better prepare students for the nonprofit world? Well, I think a lot of the, the myths that we deal with in the sector that really make our work very difficult, they need to be dispelled early on. For example, this overhead myth, it's still plaguing our sector. And so I think it's, it's really important when our you know, professionals are being trained at the college or grad school level that they really understand many of these things, you know, are, are they affect real work on the ground out there. So if your instructors are training people on how to minimize overhead, for example, you know, instead of having a really thoughtful conversation about the entire issue of overhead indirect and, and so on, then I think that will help to perpetuate, you know, uh, many of the challenges that, that we see out there. Um, so I think just being really thoughtful about bringing in some real life leaders who are who have a, a handle on, the, on these issues into the classroom to talk about many of these things, because I, I think I do think that it can be very academic these concepts but it, it affects real people on the ground not just the nonprofit staff out there but our actual clients mm -hmm. when we don't have the resources and the support that, that we that we have um, to, to do this work it so keeps yeah. us from truly meeting our missions in, in many ways yeah yeah absolutely so I know one question that I often get asked by college students working in the nonprofit world to so being a part of Campus Compact, we're this interesting organization where we are a nonprofit, but we're a higher ed association. So we kind of straddle both worlds in many ways. But I've had students ask me really honest questions about pay in the nonprofit world, and they really want to go into nonprofit work, but they're worried about also making. A living and you know as I've navigated these conversations with students sometimes students are like oh I didn't realize that I could also have a life and live and, and be a nonprofit professional what would be some advice that you would give to students who may ask you um, well I really want to go into the nonprofit world but I really want to also have a livelihood <laughs> it's completely possible yeah. I, I think that is another myth that we need to dispel that you have you, that you are taking a vow of poverty when you enter the nonprofit sector. I, I think it's very destructive because it prevents good people from entering into into this work. I do think though, you know, I mean, we definitely have some challenges that the sector needs to work on. Yes, we we do tend to overpay. I mean, underpay our our team members um, because most nonprofits are are very small. And we don't, we need to do a better job paying people decent wages and, and so on. On the other hand, there are lots of careers and profession and, you know, in, in the sector itself where you can make a very decent living. You're not going to get rich, I don't think, <laughs> doing this right. work, right? Um, but I think you can make a, a decent living. I, I remember, though, what it was like because I was in an AmeriCorps program and then was making $1,200 working full-time you know, a month. And that was really challenging. Uh, and, I was, and I remember thinking, oh man, I am just gonna be stuck like this forever. And, but that's not true. As you develop in your skills and you, you grow in your career, there's a lot of decent paying jobs where you can have a, a you can support a family you can live in a, a decent area um, yeah so we, we need to tell we need to let people know yeah and I will say as an AmeriCorps alum as well national service does prepare you for work in the nonprofit sector in a way that the classroom never can and even if you're involved in a service learning or community-based learning course uh, I'd say National Service and AmeriCorps prepares you in a way that those experiences don't and making that sacrifice is completely worth it uh, in the end, just education level based on working with communities uh, and your future career as a nonprofit professional. Yeah, I, I do think that there's a lot of great things happening with the, the National Service Corps. Uh, I do think that they need to do a better job paying people more because there's an equity issue there. Many uh, students or emerging professionals of color can't 
enter into many of these service programs because they have to support their families with their income. And so I, I think that the model itself needs some tweaking so that it's more fair and, and equitable to diverse communities um, and diverse income levels. I would absolutely. But, oh, go ahead. Sorry. No, I'm just saying. But you know, I really appreciated my my two years being one of these service core members, and I learned a lot. And I developed some amazing relationships. So I I agree with you. I think I think they're definitely worth it. Yeah, and I was just going to say, I, I agree with you on the equity piece as well. And also the paperwork side of it, don't get me started. <laughs> but if you're a really small nonprofit, there's a challenge there as well. Just the capacity to manage all of the paperwork that goes into doing that program. So again, I'm a huge fan of, of National Service, so I don't want anyone listening to this to think that um, we're knocking it in any way, but I would agree with you. There are areas that could be straightened out and cleaned up a little bit to make it a little more equitable for uh, our, our folks of color and also for smaller nonprofits. Absolutely. So uh, before we come to an end, I want to play a little thing we call Pop Culture Corner. And typically, Emily and Andrew and I do this at the end when we're doing our commentary uh, around the interview, where we take something from pop culture, current pop culture, and relate it back to our work or our, or our field. Um, and, and you can't cheat and you can't take Golden Girls. But I just want to ask you, right now, what is there in pop culture that really sticks out to you as, like, this relates? totally back to the nonprofit world huh let me see well I've been watching a lot of Game of Thrones I think that has been very helpful because I feel like the sector has is a lot like Game of Thrones there's a lot of fighting there's a lot of competition around resources and power and influence and in the meanwhile there's these ice zombies that everyone needs to focus on you know, but instead of working together to defeat the ice zombies, we're kind of fighting with one another mm. in this Hunger Games that, that we do. So, yeah, there you go. Game of Thrones and the Hunger Games. Just combine them into one <laughs> sort of method. <laughs> it's perfect. I love it. Yeah. 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 Uh, it's, yeah, so interesting. And also The Walking Dead. I stopped watching The Walking Dead after the opening of season seven. I'm just like, I can't take this anymore. Yeah. But, the Walking Dead is, you know, about zombies, but the zombies are not the scary things. Uh, it's the other human beings, because other human beings are the ones that lie and cheat and connive and scheme and, and backstab. Yeah. The zombies do that. Yeah, they and, turn, they turn, yeah, the humans turn on each other. Exactly. And, and I kind of feel like in many ways, like our culture has kind of reached this point with dialogue no one can talk to one another. There's just a lot of trolling and, you know, so it's kind of like, ah, oh, God, we, we need to focus on the zombies again, and yet we're just attacking one another. So, yeah, it's, it's yeah. So really, and I, and so what I hear you saying is a mixture of it really would be something like the hungry dead. So as a society, <laughs> like, we're hungry to figure out these things, but we're also very dead inside. So we just fight each other and turn against each other in many ways. Where we're I not really like. Dead <laughs> <laughs> well, I wouldn't say we're dead inside, but maybe we're lacking uh, direction on how to solve real problems together. Maybe. Yeah, but I don't want. I want to. And I'm trying to manage this because. Like I like some people point out, I was getting a little bit grumpy on some of my blog posts. There's a lot of really good things going on right now. There's a lot of hopeful things. I think a lot of people are very scared and fearful and in despair uh, regarding the rise of Nazism and white supremacy and, and things like that. And the current administration has been very frustrating uh, for many communities. But at the same time, we see just thousands of people outnumbering the racists and the hate mongers and, and so on, you know? They are always outnumbered, like 20 to 1. And then there's amazing people fighting back every single day. And I, I think it's it's very inspiring. It, it gives me hope. We're, none of, we're not taking this, you know, just taking it lying down. Yeah, and those are the stories we need to focus on the most. 
and forget about the hungry dead. <laughs> right. Yeah. So if our listeners want to find you online, they can check you out at nonprofitaf.com for posts that make Mondays suck a little less. You also do a nonprofit happy hour, an ED happy hour on Facebook. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, nonprofit happy hour is just a peer support Facebook group. And it's it's reaching 35,000 people. There's lots of pictures of baby animals. Uh, <laughs> That's always fun. ED happy hour. <laughs> ED Happy Hour is really targeted towards uh, executive directors, CEOs, or recovering EDs and CEOs. <laughs> That's a supportive space. I think it's about 4,500 people at, at this point. And it's great. These groups are really wonderful. I think especially if you work for a very small nonprofit, you don't really have many coworkers to bounce ideas off. So it's good to, to have these resources. And if folks want to check out the Rainier Valley Corps, they can just Google that, right? Or what's the web address for that? Yeah, it's rainiervalleycorps.org. Great. Yeah, just or just Google it. We're doing some really cool stuff here. Uh, if you want to talk about another show, we're, we're trying the Star Trek model, which I'm writing about later, which is, you know, we have to get, we have to, we're, Rainier Valley Corps is like the Starfleet. Oh, perfect. <laughs> and <laughs> so in Star Trek, we have all these starships, right? They each have their own captain and their own mission, but they're bound together by a Starfleet that has a, a leadership academy and a judiciary branch and a, a legal branch and an engineering branch. And so a lot of these services are centralized so that the, the starships and the captains can focus on their missions. So that's what we're trying to do over here in Seattle is like forming this sort of centralized hub because we don't think that it is effective for every single organization to be doing their own HR, their own financial management, et cetera. If Rainier Valley Corps can do a lot of this and also send leaders, fellows to these organizations to help them focus on their missions so they don't spend all their time uh, just doing back office administrative work, then I think we'll go a lot further uh, as, as, a, as a field to actually address these issues. So that's what we're piloting over here in, in Seattle. It sounds spicy. I'm excited to learn more about it and to read more on your, your writing on that approach. Um, so, Vule from Nonprofit AF and the Rainier Valley Corps, thank you so much for joining us on the Compact Nation podcast. Thanks a lot, JR. Had a great time. All right, welcome back, guys. Uh, JR, great interview. That was a lot of fun. I definitely follow Nonprofit AF and Vu's work and was really excited to have him on the show, and it didn't disappoint. Um, so I think given what you brought up in the conversation, we must start with who our go Golden Girl personas are. <laughs> uh, yes. Why don't you go ahead and start first? Okay, so this is a test because I was thinking about it, and um, I think my fear is I'm a Dorothy, but I'm going to say Sophia. Ah, I could see that. You know, actually, I was going to say I thought you would be more of a Dorothy, but I could see uh -huh. a little bit of Sophia in you. There's nothing wrong. So I think, I mean, I'm definitely, I have Dorothy's wit and sarcasm, as I was saying to Vu. Um, but, you know, I've actually taken the official, as official as it can be, I don't think it's scientific, the BuzzFeed quiz, and they tell me that I'm Blanche, which I was a little surprised about. I guess I don't Aww. totally see myself as, as Blanche. Uh, I've always kind of considered myself to be more of a Dorothy as well. So I like to say maybe I'm a mix of Blanche and Dorothy. I don't know. What do you think, Andrew, about, about our self-assessments? So th this is where I'm going to shock you all by acknowledging that I've maybe watched that show like once or twice. I'm not so clear on all the uh, dimensions of the characters. So one thing is I, I um, anytime the subject of the Golden Girls comes up, I have to point out, since I taught for a couple of years at St. Olaf College, that uh, <laughs> nothing makes Oli's prouder in this world than Golden Girls, because it's a St. Olaf alum who created the show and... They pretend it's set in a town called St. Olaf, although there is no town called St. Olaf in the actual Minnesota. So that's mostly, you know, my association with it is mostly fond memories of my time at St. Olaf and in Minnesota. Uh, but also, I will say this. I do think uh, B. Arthur and Betty White are two of the just best people who've ever existed. I think they're incredibly 
talented, wonderful human being. So I, I respect everybody who's watched that show. It was just never really in my wheelhouse. Well, if, if Emily and I are both Dorothy's, then we have to have some of the other Golden Girls on our team. So we'll have to uh, make you someone else. Although I feel like possibly you could be Stanley. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Okay. <laughs> Fair uh, enough. So I, I guess what I most took away from the interview, and I'm very interested in a lot of what he's written about and was interested in what he had to say about cultural competency and a few other things, but I think the biggest sort of overarching thing is just not to take yourself and your work too seriously. And I think, uh, you know, his point is that that could be an issue in the nonprofit sector. I think it's definitely a thing in higher education. And that, that just resonates with me because I think that's something I try to do and I'm not always sure it's going to be well received. I just have to uh, disagree a little bit, Emily. I don't think I've ever met anyone in higher education who takes him or herself too seriously. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, no, you know, it's interesting to me. I, um, I had not, before JR suggested Vu as a guest for the show, I was not familiar with the blog. Uh, so then I went and have read a bunch of stuff and I do really like, and I think this came through, but it really comes through in his writing, the, just the way he cuts through a lot of issues that people dance around or they, um, find sort of complicated to think about and, and just has some very direct ways to think about things. Um, and, and I do think that's incredibly useful because I think we just, overcomplicate things a lot of the time. And I know I do that in all kinds of contexts, but sometimes it is the case that if you kind of step back and you have somebody with sort of clear eyes, just say, look, we, we ought to be able to agree on a few things. There's ways we ought to deal with each other. There's ways we ought to approach situations. And I thought, you know, the whole discussion of the relationships with funders, I thought it was interesting in that way, just saying like, you have to, you have to frame this around what you're actually trying to do and what the purposes are of your work and then you can figure out how to how to proceed i will say one thing that was interesting to me in in that particular conversation is that i realized that we are so first of all i think certain things just are changing in the culture of philanthropy in a positive way and you know i think we have mostly by luck i think stumbled into some relationships with really great funders who put our interests and our mission first and then ask how they can be supportive of that, involved with that. Um, and I realized that, you know, different sectors are very different. Um, but anyway, I thought that was a really interesting discussion. Yeah, I think some of his blogs about, um, you know, donor-centered philanthropy and some of the changes that philanthropy needs to make have been very interesting. And I've seen a lot of parallels to higher education community engagement. I mean the same kind of principles that we try to espouse around putting what the community organization wants to do and what the community says they need first um, and not making what you're trying to do and what you want to do at the center is just fits with both what he's saying and what we try to talk about. So I think um, even though it's, it's a slightly different context with the relationships between nonprofits and funders, I think there are a ton of similarities. I agree. So many clear parallels. And it's really hard for me to determine what I enjoyed the most out of the conversation because there were so many connections to the work we do. I really enjoy his approach. But at the end of the day, I, you know, I enjoy the humor that he brings to all of this. But I also enjoy the honesty that, you know, we discussed how sometimes life is hard and life isn't funny sometimes and you know he got into a really dark spot at one point with just everything going on in the world that he had started to lose that humor and it really took a friend who had to say to him you know like shake yourself out of this like get back to your center of your humor because that's really how you're able to move your work and your message forward and, and it really took that person saying look get out of this and so I just really appreciated his honesty around that uh, you know, trying to find humor when we live in a really difficult world. Anything else you guys wanted to bring up or talk about in regards to the interview? I was just also interested in learning a little bit about his own organization and the effort to really uh, 
yeah, build an organization around cultivating talent and leadership in the not-for-profit sector from communities of color. And um, yeah, I just, I mean, so nothing deep to say about that, but it just sounded like a great effort and, um, you know, something really interested in, I'm thinking about how we can be supportive of efforts like that in our sector and in kind of building uh, in more intentional ways, pipelines and um, pathways to opportunity that, that can really reshape the sector we're in by providing more voices, uh, more equity, et cetera, in, in who's doing the work and who's, who's getting the chances. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's a good model. And I also think just in general, the way in which he tries to build up the nonprofit sector and almost kind of allow the sector to um, have better self-esteem. I know that seems kind of weird, but I think there is sort of this uh, inferiority complex in the nonprofit sector, you know, that brought on by some of the cultural messaging around the um, superiority of the private sector and and those within it. And I love how he frames that. And one of the ways he frames that is a, is a good transition to a resource I want to share. I say resource questioningly because, well, you'll see. But in his bid, I think, to help those who work in the nonprofit sector have more confidence in their abilities and the work they're doing, one of the things he talks about a lot is uh, just calling nonprofit uh, staff members, nonprofit unicorns, like just really pointing to the unique nature of the kind of person who can be successful in this sector. So he had a blog a while back um, that allowed you to, using a simple formula, come up with your nonprofit unicorn name and title. So mine is Feisty Crystal Moonbeam. And my title is Face of Board Members. So nice. from you guys, I simply need your birth month and birth dates. <laughs> and I will be able to generate your nonprofit unicorn names and titles. Somehow I knew we were going down this path. <laughs> so. Uh, so you need my, our birth month and the date? And date. Not year. We won't reveal that. Okay. Social security okay. number. Are we supposed to provide that? Social security number. Uh, driver's license number. Yeah. Just birth month and date. So I'm I'm July 10th, March 22nd. Okay, this is good. <laughs> okay, so Jr., you are rising, flowing nostrils. Oh, nice. <laughs> that, that's a self-esteem booster. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. But your title is pretty great. Your title is Harvester of Wishes. Oh well, I, I I think that's pretty accurate. I kind of yeah, I like that. I like to make things happen for people who want them to happen and, and everything, I guess. Yeah. Okay. So, Andrew, you are tender crystal moonbeam. Do you know what's just by coincidence at Twitter, you can find me at tender crystal moonbeam. <laughs> so nice. that's just worked out that way, I guess. But your, your title, which you, I mean, you might want to adopt um, is breath of conference calls. <laughs> Oh, that, that is uh, reasonably descriptive as a term. <laughs> okay, so that's my resource. Go find your nonprofit unicorn name and title on the Nonprofit AF blog website. Nice. Anybody else? Try to top that, guys. Just try. I, you know, I don't think I can top it. And, and actually, I was going to point people back to his website, but not, not that section, which I think is a, a fantastic section. But he also has cultural competency quizzes and resources on the nonprofit AF site that I think uh, it's just a good exercise to go through with your team just to create conversations around cultural competency. Sounds good. Andrew, what do you got for us this week? Uh, I have a resource that is not on the nonprofit AF blog, but it was uh, suggested to me by that uh, discussion. So as I mentioned, I was at the Imagining America conference last week, and I uh, had the chance to see in action the new faculty director, Erica Cole Arenas. And Erica also gave a talk at a session that I was in, and she has written a book that came out just this last year 
called The Self-Help Myth, How Philanthropy Fails to Alleviate Poverty. And it's published by University of California Press. And the context for the book, Erica, before she became an academic, spent uh, a number of years as an organizer working with uh, rural communities in the Central Valley in California. And she then went on to graduate school and was uh, working on a dissertation proposal. And I don't have the, all the details of the story, but essentially she had a proposal that related to the work she was doing with farm workers. And her advisor read the proposal over and said, the real dissertation is in your footnotes. And it turned out what was in the footnotes was all these descriptions of how all of the various efforts she was describing ran into major problems because they headed in directions that the funders were not comfortable with. And that this led to the breakdown of a lot of the kinds of work that she was talking about. So she ended up writing this book about the relationship between philanthropy and efforts, you know, community led efforts to end poverty. Um, I haven't had a chance to read the book because I just got it, but her talk about it was incredibly interesting. Um, and I think for many people in our field would be would be something they'd want to take a look at. Um, and and again, Erica is now in this position where she's uh, kind of working alongside us, uh, doing leading the work of IA. So also really interesting to get to just uh, get a sense of how she views the world. Great. And I think that sounds really interesting. Um, I will also quickly share a real resource uh, just so I'm not taking myself too not seriously maybe. <laughs> uh, but I, there was a great blog in Education Week um, called Civics Needs a Makeover How Now How Keep It Stupid. Oh my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> maybe you want to try that one again. I'm not sure any of those words were the ones you were hoping for. <laughs> They're all in there somewhere. <laughs> okay, let's try that again. Okay, the article that Emily wants to tell us all about is called Civics Needs a Makeover Now. How? Keep it student-centered, stupid. <laughs> okay, beautiful, beautiful. So it's by Kay Kawashima Ginsburg. And one of the resources it shared is a Students at the Center Framework, um, which is a model for civic education. And I'll just share a little bit of what they say, uh, and this is a direct quote. So. Our civics and government courses too often tell students about American democratic society and the role of citizens in sustaining and strengthening it without letting students of all backgrounds practice the skills required to actually live in democracy. We know from research that not all youth believe the American democratic principles apply to them and not everyone has equal opportunities to experience democratic practices at home. So basically, uh, you know, the point is that the best way to teach um, civic learning is student-centered, and what is student-centered is experiences uh, that are personalized, that are competency-based, that allow students to own their learning, um, and really to practice those knowledge, skills, and dis dispositions uh, for civic life. So that obviously really spoke to me because I think it fits with what we talk about a lot, and it's just always good to find, I think, new um, models and research uh, speaking to how we can do that well definitely See? i got through that whole thing <laughs> that's very good uh and Kay, for people who don't know is um the director of circle uh right. over at which is at tisch college at tufts university and is you know in general a great resource for uh information about youth civic engagement uh and all kinds of good stuff Yes, the Center for Information Research on Civic Learning and Engagement. I often cite their their research um, in the work that I'm doing because they, they just talk a lot about how to better engage young people in our democracy. Nice. All right, guys, before I break into another fit of giggles, we probably <laughs> should call it a day. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say we've taken note from Vu and we made this a fun, funny podcast, right? We found yes. humor in the day. I, yes, I may, it may be slightly towards the insane side of humor where, you know, you just laugh uncontrollably. But sometimes that's needed. But I'll take it. I'll take whatever I can get. Yes, that is the right attitude when it comes to that, <laughs> I would say. 
All right, we will be back in a couple of weeks with some really exciting interviews that are in the works, so stay tuned. Uh, Keep on rating us and subscribing on iTunes. Tell your friends. Um, Contact us at podcast.compact.org or hashtag compactnationpod because we want to hear your ideas for who we should be interviewing. Maybe it's you. We'd love to have you on, so get in touch. Thanks, and have a great day, everybody. Bye-bye. everyone. Season 2 of the Compact Nation podcast is produced by Naval Mahdi for the Campus Compact headquarters in Boston, Massachusetts, and its 1,100 colleges and universities around the globe. All rights reserved. Learn more about Campus Compact at compact.org. The hosts of the Compact Nation podcast are Emily J. Shields, J.R. Jameson, and Andrew Seligson. Recommendations for guests, topics, or general questions can be sent to podcast at compact.org or join the conversation on Twitter at hashtag CompactNationPod. The Compact Nation podcast is available on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. Don't forget to subscribe and rate us. Habiba, I'm wondering if you could give us some feedback on our episode. 